I'm Dan Rundy. This is another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm really pleased that Father Daniel Mode, who is a Catholic chaplain in the U.S. Navy, he's on a fellowship at the Religious Freedom Institute. He's on a chaplain fellowship that he'll tell us about. I wanted to have Father Mode come in to talk about a number of things. One of the things I want to talk about is the intersection of U.S. national security strategy and religious freedom. But I also want him to talk a little bit about how did he end up becoming a priest, how what's it like being a chaplain to the U.S. Armed Forces, and how did you end up becoming a fellow, at, you know, at the Religious Freedom Institute and the work that you're doing and how what you're going to bring back to uh, to your service as a as a chaplain to the Navy. So, Father Mode, thanks for being with us. It's a great joy to be here. Thank you. I really, it was really nice to meet you a couple weeks ago, and I said I've got this podcast series. I'd really like you to be on it. You have this really interesting life. You've got these really interesting issues you're working on. Could you first tell my audience how did you, where did you grow up, and how did you decide to become a priest? So I always say, where didn't I grow up? So I grew up in a Navy family. My father was a Navy captain. I've never lived anywhere longer than four years. I went to three different high schools in two different countries. If that kind of gives you a snapshot that kind of like Jesus would say, you know, when he was asked, where do you live? And he would say, come and see. (laughs) You know, (laughs) the birds have have nests and the flowers have the fields, but where do I live? So I've always been on the go. I'm 53 years old, never lived anywhere longer than four years. So I grew up a a Navy brat, as you say. My vocation, I, I grew up in a very devout Catholic family. Uh, However, I wanted to be an airline pilot. That was what I really wanted to do. I was fascinated by air, Mm. aircraft, and flying. In sixth grade, I built a complete cockpit in my room with thrusters and everything. Wow. Uh, Even in my chair, pilot's chair in the back, had a magazine rack. If I was really good, mom and dad would take me to the airport and let me run around. That's back in the day when you could let your kid go through there and there's no TSA line. And I, I built a control tower in my backyard to watch the planes come in. And I had a schedule of, of when they came in. So I, I like when they're out there like these Uber hobbyists. I see them at the airport. Exactly. They're like, and they're like recording train, things. Instead of and, train spotting, they're like they're plane spotters. Right. And they have all the gizmos, the GPS, as well as the, the uh, radios. Do you still hear. do that? Because I'm very busy in other things. I don't get a chance to do that. But ultimately, in eighth grade, I went to a Catholic school in Chicago, Illinois. And it was in eighth grade on Christmas Day, of all things, that I heard at dinner. We had a big family dinner. My dad's from Chicago, so we're with aunts and uncles and cousins. And literally, I always say, in between passing the mashed potatoes and the gravy, I heard God in my heart say, Dan, you are to be a priest. Really? I heard it twice. I heard those very exact words. Now, I'm an eighth grade kid and and just trying to process this. So I kind of kept it quiet for about six months that summer. I asked my dad what I should do, and he said, well, Talk to Father Senor, who uh, was the Catholic chaplain on the base. And so Father Senor was a Capuchin priest. And, and that was Capuchin, my... like Capuchin uh, Franciscan. Exactly. And so that was my first introduction to talking about the priesthood. I went to, again, three different high schools. During that time, I continued to think about the priesthood. Ultimately, after I graduated from West Springfield High School in Springfield, Illinois, or Springfield, Virginia, I um, entered into the seminary with the Diocese of Arlington. So instead of going to college, you went to a college seminary. You went to college seminary, the Josephinum in Columbus, Ohio, and then uh, Mount St. Mary's in Emmitsburg, Maryland. For sure, my, I know exactly. My, my, my wife and I know exactly where that is. Yeah, my d- graduate. Beautiful degree. place. 
And after I was ordained a priest in 1992, within weeks, I started learning how to fly. So about 25 years ago, I got my pilot's license, and I've been flying ever since. So, so you, so you, as soon as you became a priest, you went to, like, aircrafts, air, aviation school? I, well, it was a, a flying school down at Quantico, Marine sure. Corps Base. And so I, because of my affiliation with the military, I, I um, had access to the base and, and started my flying lessons. And, and what, what do you fly? Single-engine aircraft, so 172s, 182s. I'm also licensed to fly seaplanes. I have, I've flown probably 40 different types of aircraft. Really? Uh, I'm not certified to fly all those aircraft, but I've even done acrobatic flying. Now, uh, you've done loop-de-loops? Loops-de-loops in a Stearman, an open cockpit Stearman. Um, like those World War One planes? I like those World War Two planes. Really? Uh, um, but I have flown in World War One type planes, like, like Cubs. Really? Um, I have flown, you name it, I've probably flown in it. I've flown gliders, paragliders. I have parachuted. I've. You've parachuted? Yeah. How, how many times have you jumped out of a plane? Once. One. Just once. Was it scary? It actually wasn't. I was really pumped for it, and it was beautiful. It was over Germany, actually. That's beautiful. And I've gotten to fly in, you name it, I've flown there. I've been flown in Spain, uh, Japan. I've flown right over Tokyo myself. Uh, I've done flying vacations where I've flown through 11 national parks in the West. I've flown all the way up the Yukon, the Canadian Yukon, to Alaska. I've flown uh, into the Arctic Circle in Alaska. Oh, my word. So I, I love flying, obviously. But I was called to be a priest. <laughs> and so, Okay, so you became a priest... And uh, when you on graduation, you don't get a diploma when you become a priest. You get orders. Uh, right. You're you get, ordained. But you're you do ordained. graduate. I, 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 I received two master's degrees, one in yeah. theology and one in history, because I'm also a great love of history. So I got a master's degree in history as was well. Was there a particular area of history that you focused in? There was. Uh, so American church history. And interestingly enough, the thesis that I wrote was about a priest who was killed in Vietnam. So matching not only my love of, of history, my love of American church history, and my love of the military, I did research on Father Vincent Capadano. So he was a priest who was killed in Vietnam, received the Medal of Honor for his heroics. Really? And I was the first person to write his life story. So what needed to be a 30-page paper turned into two and a half years of research and writing into a 300-page master's thesis. Have you published it? It is published. It's called The Grunt Padre. It's in its fourth edition. Uh, a new documentary just came out on it. His, so his, they made a documentary out of your book? Yep, called Called and Chosen. And he is a servant of God now. I'm the postulator for his cause. So explain what that is for, for non, non, <laughs> non-Catholic. Non, okay. Non, I, as my grandfather would say, I hit the rail on Sunday, so I know what you're talking about. Okay. But, but what explain what that means. So we all have heroes, right? We know of heroes. There's statues yeah. of heroes and so forth. Well, in the Catholic Church, we have our heroes, too. Well, how does a person receive the Medal of Honor? You know, well, it's a long process. You have to do something heroic. Uh, it takes a group of people to decide that. So the church has that kind of same process. However, it's on a very higher plane, like heaven, where the church literally investigates whether this person who is heroic in their virtues is a saint in heaven. And so how do they know that? Well, there are testimonies of his heroic virtues. There is uh, miracles that have to be shown and proven that are cannot be medically explained. 
And as it moves along the process, your your first stage is called servant of God, which is what Father Capadano is now. And then and you were involved with that. Yes. So I was the postulator for that stage. It took about ten years to move it to, to Italian Rome. Italian bureaucracy. Well, uh, first the American bureaucracy right, of it, right. the diocesan bureaucracy. Now it's in Rome uh, for the last two years, and he's waiting to be declared uh, uh, blessed or, or beatified, and then then saint. So there's like there's two. I'm not gonna call it. I'm gonna use the word levels, but that's not the the right term for it. Right. It's uh, two. So, so before becoming a saint, there's sort of two levels of right. recognition. Venerable, venerable, yeah. venerable is basically after you've done a whole lot of research, <laughs> uh, you you give to Rome what's called a positio, which is all the documents. The it's like an application. An application. It's all the proofs that this man had heroic virtue. It goes through a committee there through the cause of saints, and ultimately that committee decides whether he is venerable, that he has all these heroic virtues. Then they have to investigate the miracle. Once one miracle is approved, he's declared blessed. And then finally, he's declared a saint after the second miracle. So have there been recorded miracles? Yes. Can you talk about them? Um, a or little not, bit. Not yet. So some of them, you know, uh, we because they're still under investigation. Okay. Um, but uh, there have been powerful examples around the world people who've been cured of cancer, people who have... Now, again, this all needs to be investigated. But from their perspective, they were healed. and Because of his intercession. Exactly. So maybe folks who are Catholic or non-Catholic will remember there's a, there's a figure in the process of becoming a saint. It's not called this anymore. but called the devil's advocate. Correct. So there's a term called the devil's advocate. I think, I don't know if post-Vatican II, if we... If we change the name, or there may be, a, maybe we still use that term. What is the devil's advocate, and when does the devil's advocate appear? Well, basically throughout the whole process, because in order even to become a servant of God, it takes a lot. One, the person who you think is saintly uh, requires, you know, a postulator, somebody who is going to be the cheerleader, so to speak. And then that person has to convince the bishop of the diocese in which that person died that they they should be start the process petition Rome to so start it's the a, process. So a bishop in Vietnam had to decide this. Exactly, Da Nang specifically. However, he did is, you have to go to Da Nang and convince the bishop? Well, what I did was because I didn't have the funds to do that. I wrote a letter to him that was translated into Vietnamese. I did it because of it's communist country and the church relationships there are, it's are difficult, complicated. The letter was sent through diplomatic pouch through the Vatican embassy here, mm. and yeah. ultimately. A year and a half later, we got the word back that that bishop gave competency to Archbishop Brolio, who's the Archbishop of the Military Archdiocese. And so the Military Archdiocese was given competency by that bishop and the cause of saints to begin the cause. So, okay. But ultimately, I've gone to Vietnam. Uh, As part of this. Yes, and I've met the bishop there. I've gone to the actual site where he was killed. Really? I've offered mass there. Really? Yes. I've, I've interviewed well over 100 people who knew Father Capadano over the years. And since the book's been published and now the documentary's been done, it's, it's a very powerful story. It's, it's obviously a very powerful my story. Life. I've been working on this for 30 years. Oh, my word. Okay, so I'm going to have to go out and buy I can buy it on Amazon? The, yes, The Grunt Padre. I love it. Okay, The Grunt Padre by Father Daniel Mode. I love it. Okay, so Father Mode, 
So you, now let's go to okay, how so, did I become a chaplain? Yeah, okay, so <laughs> I, I was going to say, how did you become a – sorry, I couldn't help, but as, once you told me you, you were involved with someone becoming a saint, I wanted to hear all about this. I can't right, help Right, right, right. So how did you – okay, so you graduate. You then go – you go across the street to get a, a pilot's license, which you do, and you, you have a, had a love of flying. Your, your life has been intertwined with the military. So how did you decide you were going to become a Catholic priest who was involved with the U.S. military, which is called a chaplain? How, how did that happen? started in college. So again, I went to the Josephinum, which is a Catholic seminary in Columbus, Ohio. It was my senior year. Now, again, remember, I grew up as a military brat. The first civilian priest I ever met was my senior year of high school because we lived on bases our whole life. So my senior year of high school, I'm at uh, St. Bernadette's Parish in Springfield, Virginia. And I went up to the pastor my first months there uh, as a student coming into uh, the area. My dad moved there for for the Navy. And I said, I want to become a priest. So the Diocese of Arlington received me, was sent to the Josephinum. Now, I never thought to be a Navy chaplain or a military chaplain in general. I always thought, okay, I'm going to be diocesan. Well, in my senior year, a priest recruiter chaplain, so a Navy chaplain, comes to the Josephinum. And says, I want you. I want you. He was telling that to right, everybody. Right, right, yeah, everybody. And I write my dad a letter, and I said, what do you think, Dad? And he goes, write the bishop. I think it's a good idea. And the bishop said, okay. And what they do is it's a special program. While you're still in the seminary, they recruit you to be what's called a chaplain candidate program officer, which is called— uh, It's like officer candidate school. Exactly, for— Seminarians. I mean, now, you, yeah. and you don't have to be a Catholic priest. You could be uh, a you could be, Jewish, you could be Muslim, rabbi, you a could be Protestant yeah. minister. Yeah. So they take you in your formation years, and they're doing two things. One, they're hoping that after you get ordained, after you finish your yeah. your divinity degree, you'll serve the armed services. You'll, you'll come in. And number two, you're now a recruiting poster within your own denomination and within your own seminary. So when somebody says, "What did you do for your summer?" vacation, I can say I was on an aircraft carrier. I was on a submarine. <laughs> exactly. Doing cool things, you know, wow, how can I do that? Yeah. So it was my senior year, recruited, the bishop allowed me to go, and I went my first year in theology at Mount St. Mary's to Newport, Rhode Island, and that's where you do your chaplain school. That's where our Navy chaplain school is. And it was there that I learned for the first time about Father Capadano because the chapel we prayed in was the Father Capadano Chapel. Really? The street along uh, in front of the building that we lived in was Father Capadano Boulevard. And the ship in the harbor was the USS Capadano. And there was memorials to him. They had uh, shadow boxes of him. So I thought it would be an easy topic to write about since he's so famous. At any rate, ultimately after I got ordained, the bishop said, now before I send you to be active duty, or reserves, I want you to spend five years in the diocese. So I was an associate pastor and then the vice principal of Bishop O'Connell High School. Here in the D.C. area. Mm-hmm. Great. And then it, it was while I was at O'Connell High School that uh, the bishop allowed me to go to the reserves. So I spent 13 years as a reserve Navy chaplain. So that's like any reservist, two days a month, two weeks a year, interspersed between what I did in the diocese. After O'Connell, I, I became a pastor at Queen of Apostles Parish in Alexandria, Virginia, and again, doing that back and forth. Well, it was getting harder, you know, to, to, to kind of serve two masters, you know, here running around as a Navy chaplain and also as a, uh, as, as a pastor in the diocese. It's hard to, to manage all that. So I was thinking I needed to get out of, of the, the military, resign my commission as a reservist, 
And then I was called up for Afghanistan. Oh, so in 2005, 9 11, yeah. 2005, it was Holy Week. And, uh, and I always knew this was a possibility. The bishop knew it was a possibility, and he still wanted me to continue with the reserves. And ultimately, I was called up for two years and served in Afghanistan for two years. You were in Afghanistan for two years? 2005 to 2007. Where were you based? Where wasn't I based? Wow. Um, so I was in 52 different operating bases. Oh, my word. I moved, uh, on average, every 2.5 days. I offered uh, close to uh, 1,000 masses. Um, okay, so it's 365 days a year. So there's like, that was two masses. Sometimes you did two masses a day. One time I did um, four masses on Easter Sunday, you know. So, yeah, and all that's helicoptering. It's all it's helicopter. Not, it's, it's not one mass or four masses in one place. It's No, no, it's four different places. Exactly. And, and there's helicopters involved. And, and, and Humvees. A lot, and Humvees. And, and fixed aircraft. And, yeah. And, and a lot, of, so a lot I, of movement. A lot of, I went on over 800 missions. From, oh, my so a mission word. From point A to point B. I mean, I could tell you a lot of stories. <laughs> oh, my word. Being shot down in a helicopter. I you were also, shot down in a helicopter. I was also the Navy chaplain who cared for the, the Navy SEALs in Operation Red Ring that everybody knows as the title of the Lone Survivor. Yes. So I was uh, Marcus Luttrell's chaplain and, and the Navy SEALs chaplain. So I, I, it was a very— It was a very intense— Tense time. And ultimately, after those two years, the bishop said— the Navy needs you more than our diocese. Wow. Go, go full time. So since 2007, I've been an active duty Navy chaplain. I've served on uh, the Truman, an aircraft carrier. I've served at the United States Coast Guard Academy. I've served at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. I served oh as word. the uh, carrier strike group chaplain in Japan for the George Washington. And I've served at the Pentagon. Uh, and now doing this fellowship, preparing myself to be the chaplain of the Seventh Fleet back in Japan. So, okay, this is wild. You could write a, you could not just write a book about somebody else. You could write a book about your life. So wild. That's wild. Okay, it's so been full life. Yeah, it's not been boring. It's not been boring. Not been boring. Yeah, I. Um, this is really interesting. So, okay, so Father, so I. What I was prompted to say, well, we really ought to have a conversation is that, well, a couple of things. There, CSIS was involved with the, with the production of and the publication of a book called Religion, the Missing Element of Statecraft, which was published in 1994. You probably have read it or you, heard of it. Actually, you told me about it yeah. a couple of weeks ago when we were at yeah. the breakfast. Yeah, Doug Johnston. And it and was you really— brought it back. Yeah, I brought him back, and that was kind of one of my public services. I thought it was really important that CSIS kind of reclaim that. I think in Washington, we don't like talking about religion. I think we'd rather talk about, I could list a whole bunch of other uncomfortable topics than talking about religion. Maybe this is, I don't know if this is a controversial way to say it, but I'd say we're in a post-Judeo-Christian world in the West, or we're going in that direction. And I also think the the world of, of technocratic expertise in the world that I inhabit is very uncomfortable with sort of anything that's sort of outside of the lo- the world of logic. But my view is is that most of the rest of the world, the places where we're called to, you know, where, where, whether it's Africa or Southeast Asia or the Middle East or Latin America, religion is a much more a, a, a central, if not the central driver of how people think or people how organize their lives. There's a central truth in their lives. And I think we have in the West, can, or continue, you know, and our experts sometimes forget this. And so that was one of the reasons I wanted to have you on. 
So that that's my thesis. Do you agree with that? What do you think of that? What, what's your reaction when I just said? Yes, I, I I I do think people are very uncomfortable with talking about religion. What what's the we line? could we could pick right? Yeah, in polite conversation, don't talk about religion or politics. And and so. One of the joys I've had the last seven months in this fellowship with the Religious Freedom Institute is to talk about that and to go to places like USAID, uh, which I've been to seven times, engaging with Great. Them, uh, engaging with State Department, especially uh, International Religious Freedom Office and Good. Ambassador Brownback. Uh, I've brought together all the chiefs of chaplains, so they're, they're flag officers, generals and admiral oh, uh, of the Air Force, Navy, Army, Coast Guard, and Marine Corps, all in one room with Ambassador Brownback to talk about this very topic, national security strategy and that intersection of religious freedom. So, so you've written a paper called The Intersection of U.S. National Security Strategy and Religious Freedom. Tell me about what is this, why is it important, and what, how should we be thinking about religious freedom in the context of U.S. national security strategy? So first of all, in our national, current national security strategy, 2017, uh, President Trump's national security strategy, it very clearly states what our priority is, as re- how f- focused religious freedom needs to be in there. But it's not the only one. Since the 1980s, we started national security strategies. And of all the national security strategies, beginning in 1998 with uh, President Clinton, Religious freedom was a component of that. Mm. Um, some of the high so every one, single one, one has had except for 2010. The 2010 one is the only one that hasn't since 1998. But all the rest have have vocabulary in them about religious freedom. You know, I can read to you that quote. Yeah, please. Um, about uh, what it says in the 2017 uh, religious security uh, national security strategy. Right. So here is President Trump's. The United States also remains committed to supporting and advancing religious freedom, America's first freedom. Our founders understood religious freedom not as the state's creation, but as the gift of God to every person and a fundamental right of our flourishing society. We will advocate on behalf of religious freedom and threaten minorities. Religious minorities continue to be victims of violence. We will place a priority on protecting these groups and will continue working with regional partners to protect minority communities from attacks and to preserve their cultural heritage. Pretty powerful language. Yes, I'm, and I'm, you would never think that that would be in a national security strategy. Listen to this from President Bush in 2006. I won't read the, all of it, but he said, as we consider which approaches to take, we will be guided by what will most effectively advance freedom's cause while we balance other interests that are also vital to security and well-being of American people. And the cause of ending tyranny and promoting effective democracy will employ a full array of political, economic, diplomatic, and other tools at our disposal, including the use of foreign assistance to support the development of religious freedom. These tools must be vigorously used to protect our freedoms. So, and then he goes on and on about religious freedom. And this really ties to our First Amendment, right? The First Amendment states very clearly, Congress shall make no laws respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So this is 
unpacking what does that mean. So that's what my paper is about. And, that's and, what my speech. And this is published, right, Father? Yes, it's online, the Religious Freedom Institute. So if I Google Father Reverend Mode, M-O-D-E, and the intersection of U.S. national security strategy and religious freedom, it'll come up. Or if you just go to the Religious Freedom Institute, it'll be, it's up on the, probably on the website. Exactly. Yep. Okay, so let me just start with what your paper says. Religious freedom and national security are closely intertwined. This is a great line, by the way. Far from being a boutique human rights issue, and that is a very interesting way to describe it, the advancement of religious freedom can play a major role in advancing national and international security. Okay, right. why? And then I unpack that. Well, so the bottom line is, and this is what the conclusion of my paper is about, is if you have more religious freedom in a country, does it actually provide stability, peace, and is it a tool against terrorism? And the answer seems to be, based on analysis and research, and I'll go into that a little bit, yes. A very, uh, over the course of, since 9-11, obviously, tons of analysis has been done on all the terrorist attacks that have occurred. And there's been tons of them, basically from 1990 to the present. And I'll give you the wave top of, of that analysis. And, it, and this is not analysis I've done, it's analysis I've pulled together. What I say is the, the research I've done in the last seven months is really connecting dots for people, like State Department, you've like cur- You've curated research. Exactly. I gave a major keynote speech for an hour at the Defense Intelligence Agency three weeks ago. Oh, my word. Because it's been an interesting topic for people, and it seems to be the answer is yes. You're the right vector for this, Father, as someone who's got cred with the military and national security community. Right. I can speak their language. You can speak their language, and, you know, you've been, you know, heck, you got shut down in a helicopter. And, you know, I think you've, you know, I think you've probably earned your, you've earned your place at the table, if I can put it that way. And then you've also, on the other hand, you got a ton of credibility because of your other, you know, because of the other hat you wear, which is as an ordained Catholic priest. I would and, so. and also the other hat you wear as a researcher. You wrote a book. You know, you're a serious researcher. It seems to me that we needed some, you know, someone like you needed to, to kind of enter there sort of a vacuum. I mean, I'm in the research business. There was a vacuum, and you have stepped into that vacuum. Well, I always see, obviously, as a religious person, that there's no coincidences. I call them God incidences. I'm putting two thumbs up because I totally agree with you. There are no coincidences, Father. I agree. Yeah, there's God incidences, and God placed me in this time and place to be able to do this. When I started the fellowship seven months ago on November 1st, I had no idea where I was going to go with doing this. Matter of fact, this was the very first fellowship that the Navy Chaplain Corps started. Awesome. You know, and they just said, "Go and do something." You know, prepare yourself well for the Seventh Fleet. So, this is what I've been doing. So, seven. But, you've gotten seven meetings with AID that says that there's a hunger for exactly. There's a demand. Not only that, but getting the ambassador for international religious freedom for two hours to talk with all the chiefs <laughs> of staff. There's a demand. Speaking to uh, DIA for an hour. There's a demand. They don't, they're not going to ask you to do that just to be polite. Right. And and other agencies that I'll not... That you don't need to mention. Mention. Uh, I, I've had several meetings with them. Right. So, I and mean, look, I mean, it's, this is... this. I think this is a misunderstood... This is a little understood issue for us as a... As a let's call it the National Security Foreign Policy Establishment. It's not, it's not fully understood. Well, listen to these stats here. This is kind of wave top analysis. And again, this is not my analysis. This was done by uh, Dr. Nile Syed, 
who wrote a book that was just published in 2018 called Weapon of Peace. And uh, the full title is Weapon of Peace, How Religious Liberty Combats Terrorism by Cambridge University Press. He actually did this as his doctorate at Notre Dame University, and he teaches at a university in Singapore. Um, So he's from Singapore. Uh, I've never met him. We've emailed each other. He has come to the United States several times. He has uh, briefed out the State Department, uh, Ambassador Brownback specifically. He's going to be coming from for the ministerial this year. Uh, which, so which, what do you there's mean? a ministerial that the State Department will run. On religious freedom? On religious freedom. It's the second annual. Obviously, uh, Secretary Pompeo is the one who— Will you be there for it? I'll be in Japan. I'll no, just have arrived in Japan. Uh, but let me give you these wave tops from this book. Yeah. Countries with a low level of religious restriction restrictions are free from religious terrorism 99% of the time. Really? States that enforce blasphemy laws, like Pakistan, are statistically experienced almost six times as many terrorist attacks than countries where no such law exists. Religiously unfree countries experience more than 13.5 times as many religious terrorist attacks than their religiously free counterparts. Nine of 10 countries hit hardest by homegrown religious terrorism impose serious restrictions on religious freedom. The vast majority of international religious terrorist groups originated from religiously oppressive settings. 88% emanated from religiously restricted countries, 8% from moderately restricted countries, and slightly more than 3% from religiously free settings like the United States, like Canada. So. Th- the thesis is the more religious freedom you have, the less terrorism you'll have. The more religious freedom you have, guess what? Other freedoms mm-hmm. prosper. Freedom of speech, freedom of the press, uh, gender uh, freedoms. It, it is the first freedom for a reason. The founding fathers had a reason for that. Okay, so what are you going to do with this, all of this work, Father Rod? You've published this paper. You're getting a lot of attraction, traction and attention. So the next step is for the institute that I've been working with, Religious Freedom Institute, to carry the ball with it. And they're already working on ways to do that. Uh, to so you were a catalyst. A catalyst. Perfect perfect word. Yeah. I, I started the engine going. The, the institute, Religious Freedom Institute, did great with university work, great with uh, government entities like state uh, and uh, NGOs. But DOD was a mystery to them. I helped unlock that mystery, gave them the right language, uh, started to develop the relationships, and and found a topic that is very worthy. One that they've been talking about. As a matter of fact, the president of Religious Freedom Institute, Tom Farr, has been talking about it at Georgetown University since at least 2008. He wrote a book about it. But it's never gotten as much play, especially now that the analysis and the research is mm coming together with the philosophical underpinnings of the truth that religious freedom is a founding principle for us in the United States, and there's a good reason why. It's amazing. Well, look, Father, this is really interesting. Thanks for making the time. I really, really was so pleased to have you on, and I'm really glad that you've invested this time here in Washington to help the national security and foreign policy community Uh, and others to understand the importance of this issue and this insight about the religious freedom as interlinked with people's security. Well, it's been an honor to do it, and really it's professionalized me. It's made me a better chaplain so that I can serve better, uh, especially as I go forward to the Seventh Fleet. Great. Thanks a lot, Father. I'm very grateful.
You're welcome. Thank you.